0: Mr. President, I have wanted to ask you about this um, Nord Stream project that you've long opposed. You didn't mention it just now by name, nor did Chancellor Scholz. Did you receive assurances from Chancellor Scholz today that Germany will in fact pull the plug on this project uh, if Russia invades Ukraine? And did you discuss what the definition
1: of invasion could be
2: let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. What do you, what,
0: how will you how will you do that exactly, since the project? And control of the project is within Germany's control.
3: We will, uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. He finally really did it. You maniac!
2: You blew it up!
3: hello and welcome to a people's history of violence the podcast where we go entirely too deep into history's crimes coups conspiracies cover-ups terrors and trials or do deep dives on deep diving and the deep divers who do it in this case i'll i'll pro- I, okay i will i will cut that i, like that. I actually <laughs> like
0: it I, I just wasn't expecting it <laughs> i'm your co-host it. isaac i'm your co-host peter and we're once again we're doing what we love to do the news
3: yeah, we're we're doing it again, but sort of. But history has a has a marquee role, a very forward role in this particular item of news. So, in September of last year, twenty twenty two, the Nord Stream one and Nord Stream two pipelines, the twin, really quad, uh natural gas pipelines that provided a steady flow from Russia's vast natural gas reserves to the heart of Central Europe and Germany suffered three massive explosions that were initially reported as leaks like mm. oops initial reaction among the EU governments like uh Germany uh Finland Sweden Denmark and so on was that this was done by Russia and uh later that has turned into a slow back pedal and then an outright retreat from saying that it was Russia or a team of Russian subs or dark ships from Russia at all now pretty much it's for the past uh I want to say like three four months the story has been essentially buried Hmm. uh essentially only being kept alive in very obscure fights on the internet between Mm -hmm. people who say it was obviously not russia and Mm -hmm. obviously their favorite suspect and people who say in especially in the uh, austin community who we'll Mm -hmm. talk about more later who say it was obviously russia depending on which particular online faction of the ukraine war you have decided to align with, that is until Cy Hirsch, Seymour mm. Hirsch published an article. So Seymour Hirsch published oh, an article on his newly formed uh, Substack uh, with editors, it turns out, and a whole team behind him, people should listen to the interview he did with Mark Ames. And uh, one place it was identified as Gary Brecker but mm. uh, John Dolan nice. on February 8th. Uh, the article, which we'll get into, is full of high levels of detail. Uh, related to Hirsch by one of his sources, like specific fucking room locations mm. where the high level source met with officials and specific verbatim quotes these officials made. Mm-hmm. Now, the article charges that President Biden ordered the formation of a team with the goal of compromising the Nord Stream pipeline and thereby Russia's ability to turn an on and off the gas switch on Central Europe to a permanent. And this, course, is obviously a gigantic covert operation with extreme implications because that means that the U.S. government, uh, with the help of an ally, as we'll talk about more, went to an allied country's infrastructure and blew it up, having con- potentially grave consequences. I mean, it's been a warm winter, but potentially grave consequences on people's ability to heat their homes, mm-hmm. uh, keep factories around, keep people in their jobs and so on. Hirsch then went into detail on the stages of the planning and execution of a joint Norwegian and U.S. operation to blow up the pipeline and in Hirsch's account a team of Navy diving unit uh, sappers bombers trained for months in Panama City Florida conducted a series of deep dives off of a Norwegian minesweeper to place hundreds of pounds of C4 on the pipelines which through a sophisticated technical plan was then detonated three months after they planted them Mm -hmm. uh, on Biden's order yeah so one of the criticisms
0: of Hirsch's piece is that it relies a lot on anonymous sources actually on in his telling a single anonymous source but it kind of looks like there's probably more than one yeah. And Hirsch's uh, interviews after publication make that increasingly clear that he probably talked to more than one person. This has allowed, you know, the kind of small cottage industry of Cy Hirsch debunkers to, you know, a, a significant opening to attack the article, to attack Hirsch's argument. You know, it's just one anonymous source, supposedly. And uh, the thing that I found is that a lot of the debunking a lot of the argument around this in general and seems to involve attempting to conscript Hirsch into what Isaac referred to as the online factions surrounding the Ukraine war that the people who think of themselves as being particularly anti-Russian and and suspect others of being pro-Russian have essentially attempted to conscript Kirsch as kind of a Russian dude
3: right and I mean I I think it's clear that we come at this from a bit of a different perspective and, and partly this is because uh I'm a I'm a crime nerd <laughs> yes I don't know this is this is a whodunit it's, in, it's a caper it's an right. interesting thing and I mean obviously it has terrible geopolitical consequences mm-hmm. and who knows if three months somehow this escalates to nuclear war right but hey man I wanted the I wanted the case mm-hmm. but yeah I agree. It's it's been a lot of. It's been about saying he has a single anonymous source because you want to be able to say, and that source could be wrong, Mister Hirsch, or and made that, that's up. obviously the case. Yeah, or, right. or yeah. made up entirely. I mean, in several
0: places like the flagship debunking uh, from a blogger. I guess is that what he is mostly all around. He the seems
3: thing? seems like a blogger. Yeah, mostly he's a blogger. Like a guy, he tweets uh, also
0: also essentially calls Hirsch says that Hirsch is lying. Yeah, right. Not just that he's possibly being duped but that he's intentionally lying
3: right it's not that your source is is mistaken or that he and I mean I think I I've heard a much more reasoned, nuanced yes. criticism from from people that we both know in the community who says you know maybe this guy was in on the planning stages but not mm-hmm. on the execution yeah. stages yeah. and so stuff changed when it when the right. test came to fruition for a reason that will detail a bit more I mean I think I put myself more in a the orthodox Hirsch camp mm-hmm. yeah but I think that as to this kind of secondary mystery of who Hirsch's source is or sources are and how this story came about I think it's pretty obvious he tried not to detail very specific meeting dates Mm -hmm. he has alluded to them because that would allow the feds to play a game of Tinker Tailor told soldier spy as to who Mm -hmm. is feeding him the quotes because people they they take down who's in fucking meetings.
0: yes I also I also just want to make clear whatever you know hirsch might or might not have gotten right or wrong i don't think he's making this up out of whole cloth right as part of some devious you know pro-russia left sub-stack plan
3: and i i don't mean this in kind of a wink or nod way i've already told you when i think about this i think unfortunately that um the game has actually already been given away as far as the biden administration's mm-hmm. concerned as to who the primary source was and the kind of these high-level planning stages At the executive office building it's not even remotely a household name Mm -hmm. but you can do your own research as to who would be involved in these types of conversations on a given working group under the executive control in the biden administration it's it's not that hard but obviously I don't mm-hmm. want to go any further than that that gets <laughs> into legalities of claiming that someone gave away state right. secrets yeah. or whatever and that's not what we're trying to do no. but also I I mean as, as Peter said I think there's very good reasons I mean Mark is pointed this out from Hirsch's memoir reporter that Hirsch feels it can be good practice in particularly dealing with cases where any of his sources who mentions, it doesn't matter how troubled or what the crime was that they were asked to commit in the service of the country, if they give away secrets, they can be quietly court-martialed uh-huh. or prosecuted right. or very publicly prosecuted or shunned away. Uh-huh. Um, it, in That all can happen if they suspect you of espionage. And uh-huh. a lot of things as far as giving away details to journalists can be construed as espionage yeah. so I I do think he's condensed several sources into one source and in particular with all the details of the dive and what happens with that I think he has a much closer to the ground source I won't say on the ground source mm-hmm. that has been folded into just the the heading of source during a watergate deep throat, right yeah. deep throat. if you're actually familiar with a lot of the case source case isn't just Mark Felt right Mark Felt's like one of five guys uh-huh. Part. but I think it's worth mentioning or discussing the fact that one of the re like there seems to be a clear reason why you would put like compose other more exposed sources you might call them uh say lower level guys into a higher level source a big reason why you would compose lower level sources say like us military personnel or cia operates people into a higher level source and thereby you know end up with this kind of voltron like Mm-hmm. all-knowing source is because if the Biden administration was to like prosecute like a high-level source national security advisor or whatever like that's tantamount to admitting that it, it like, they did it yeah you know it's tantamount to admitting that all of the quotes the locations mentioned by Hirsch like the, in the executive office building his description of how the meetings went out, those are all true mm-hmm you know, which is a confession. So they're not going to do that. I mean, it, the Biden administration's official line right now is that that this is all like fan fiction, right? That, like, I don't even think they think they can tail anybody with a car or, right. like, have the FBI, like, open investigations on people that are they're that too obvious because that's turned about being, like, who leaked Hirsch when they're maintaining right now. nobody leaked no leak because there's nothing to Right. There's no leak. There's nothing to leak. Yes, that's that's that. If it was a lower-level military guy to leak, you know, like the way that, you know, Willem Cowley talked to Hirsch about me lie, that's a different thing. The military Mm -hmm. can very quietly put some no-name guy in the proceedings and not tell anybody about it Mm -hmm. for a while and classify everything. Just keep him in the brig.
0: Yeah.
3: Not the same when you, uh, you know, arrest someone on the Beltway or in Virginia or Maryland or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. But as to the credibility of this source, I I think with the level of detail is given, as we said already, it seems clear you can't just say Hirsch was burned by his rights. Right. He doesn't actually have the goods either. And my <laughs> my other favorite alternate explanation, if you're like extremely like tanky, is that this is a limited hangout by the CIA. Mm-hmm. The CIA decided they would they would they would call up Cy Hirsch and use him as a cat's paw right to leak a story that that could then be easily debunked which to which I would say like why right why why hasn't the story then appeared in major papers and been very publicly debunked
0: yeah we spent all this time talking about you know shooting down weather balloons yeah. we could have spent you know the, the CIA has set all this up for publicity we could have been talking about this I mean Isaac has been talking about this for weeks but the, the larger culture I,
3: been- I have been spamming Peter's inbox it's true with I, I, sa- I w- with material on saturation oh yeah acting. i i i man it's a you could say, you could say
0: I'm saturated. no it's it's good it's interesting stuff yeah. I, i've learned a
3: lot uh so yeah either hirsch has i mean bottom line is either hirsch has one of his sources is a highly placed source who would be involved in these types of discussions or he sat over jane's naval technical right. magazines of various types to invent a scenario out of whole cloth um yeah you know when he's already sitting on a Pulitzer and has money at age 85. yeah okay yeah sure and i also love the story that he's like a russian disinformation agent when like he's chosen like as his first people to talk to like radio warden yeah, democracy. Democ- democracy now that famous found of super a jacobin yeah yeah right. uh it, when like tucker carlson's like literally calling him up, being like please can yeah. you say bad stuff about the Biden administration he just hangs up the phone yeah the the, uh, the case is also been uh been full of what i found is a direct analogy to web sleuths people mm. like extremely online true crime people yeah. it turns out that they have an exact counterpart in i'm what would you call it intelligence special operations yeah like... in the awesome community these people like do not know how to weigh evidence. no like at all they know how to find information mm-hmm. and post about it all right lot what do you do with
0: how, how do you contextualize it how do you make a narrative without like a false narrative or a or even just a narrative you're putting too much weight on taking yeah. over that's something i mean you see that pretty
3: much across the board in the internet <laughs> uh, so for the like the free for the brief time this case was in actually like an ongoing criminal investigation mm-hmm. with updates and i would say it's about like two months after the explosions happen it's technically legally still an ongoing investigation with three different prosecutors offices and agencies handling it the the german federal police mm-hmm. the swedish federal police uh and they were assisted at a bunch of points by the swedish military Make that way you will the danish federal police and specifically the copenhagen division mm-hmm. of that it was it was a criminal investigation so rather than taking this uh on from like a hardware nerd perspective uh we're gonna look at this crime scene. So there are a lot of the people in the communities we run with who will have what we might call uh, in paradoxically, an amateur expertise in Mm -hmm. naval affairs and natural gas and um, ships, in vessels and Baltic Sea surveillance. Mm -hmm. I've heard about that. We're we're in the business, of course, of, of reinvestigating crimes. We're not usually in the business of news. They can be wrong more often. (laughs) but this was a crime and it arguably it's the greatest act of marine sabotage at least in decades and it's also probably the single greatest environmental crime mm-hmm. this unleashed and I found a, a statistic that was calculated right at the beginning of this now I think it's probably a bit too conservative but it was the equivalent of the release of the annual emissions of two million cars oh, wow all at once mm-hmm and a lot of climate scientists have said well I mean statistically that won't have too big an effect on global warming but methane obviously is a much worse gas than carbon dioxide for global warming Mm -hmm. and that's bad if you you know it's it's a Captain Planet act yeah (laughs) right so as Hirsch and a number of legal scholars have pointed out the the law of the seas and the various trees around it are a bit murky on whether the destruction of a pipeline international waters, even though it goes in between two countries, is an act of war on the justified use of force and self-defense. It's Mm supposed to say uh, the grounds for a big, fat international lawsuit in the payment of money. Uh, But it does actually remain a crime, regardless of where it took place. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an act of massive explosive sabotage and one that's normally investigated in the manner of underwater post-blast investigation. Hmm. We're using divers and submersibles to identify and retrieve retrieve the remnants of exploded objects. Anything else that was from the object, forensic scientists can collect and catalog. Right. sounds like the
0: sort of thing that uh, very specialized insurance companies deal with.
3: Yes. Uh, and also, like World War II ordinance, oh, where yeah. it blows up ships and stuff occasionally. So, yeah, yeah. there's underwater investigation mm. that happens. Now, I'll admit to put bias on the table, I have a major soft spot for Hirsch. Partly that's the personality. He's a working class Jewish kid from Chicago. He talks to the machine gun telegraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James Elroy narrator, except not racist. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a cool guy. He started out as a Cub reporter on the Night Beat Crimes in Chicago. Uh, that gets detailed in Reporter, a memoir I encourage everyone to read. Mm. And he exposed the My Massacre and CIA surveillance program mm. in the 70s. Uh, but Peter, uh, who also likes Hirsch, mm. uh, has thankfully kept uh, not fever-brained and uh, has more been more carefully suggesting to me and elsewhere to carefully apply Peter's razor to other possibilities, even though I think we... Agree that yeah. the US is the most yeah, we're, we're, we're all on the
0: same page here. Have we talked about Peter's razor on the show? Is that just a joke between us or is that been on the show?
3: Shit, I think that's a joke between us. I yeah. think we should introduce our audience in a line and appropriate sound effect to the concept of Peter's razor.
0: Okay. okay. Well, Peter's razor is a takeoff on Occam's razor. Uh you know, Occam's razor holds that uh all other things being equal, the most parsimonious explanation is usually correct that is the least complicated fewest sort of lines of cause and effect whereas peter's razor is sort of an adenem to that which is all other things being equal the most boring banal explanation is usually correct uh and the explanations that seem exciting and fun usually are less correct which i would like to point out i'm not happy about folks I think that's a flaw in the, in in either our times or in the nature of the universe or of human perception. I like things to be fun and exciting. I wish that that Peter's razor was not applicable, but I do think it's a thing.
3: Peter's razor, yeah, that's it. It's kind of a it's like kind of a presumption. Like mm. all other things being equal, right. the black hole singularity of boredom, mm. boring reality is going to hold and drag every other explanation down until the evidence shows otherwise so uh you know to our uh, liberal or ambiguously left-wing or just uh open-minded listeners uh this might be a helpful interesting aquatic detective guide to our tankier listeners uh among among you this is going to be beating the cadaver of a dead horse of a case to a Dostoevsky degree of sadism yeah so I thought we'd start out with by saying that Hirsch's scenario here is of a brilliant, uh, well-executed operation that was, however, full of of speed bumps and turns Mm. and information sharing issues that uh, did not necessarily go off without a hitch. His scenario, for example, there are eight bombs that were placed and six of them detonated, Mm. making two bombs kind of missing. Yeah. But I thought we'd start out with putting Hirsch's story out of our minds. Like, let's go into this with like a little bit of a veil of ignorance mm. and go back to the crime scene and the prior investigation around it. All of which happened in, like I said, about two months and then stopped. So a great deal of evidence that would help us decide who blew up the pipeline has been close to the vest of investigators whose reports are, of course, Confidential. They've Mm -hmm. been kept from the public. Even a a quote-unquote transparent investigation, as the Swedes said, their investigation was the UN. Very recently, doesn't have to share like what their findings are at Mm -hmm. the moment if it's still ongoing. Reminds me a little bit of like homicide cases where they're like. When they can't find a perpetrator and they know the case has gone cold, they nevertheless will deny request for information because it's still an open investigation. Right. At least uh, formally. So as of February 20th, however, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden reported their investigations are ongoing. But we know that in the case of Denmark, at least, and possibly Sweden, Jeffrey Sachs also says Sweden did this as well, a preliminary report of findings was already submitted. Now, that preliminary report could consist in anything like We investigated this scene forensically. We extracted this out of it. These are a list of potential suspects or a suspect would have to satisfy these requirements in order to have done this. And we include things like an estimate of like how big the explosion was, what explosives were used. Mm -hmm. Uh, But all of them that have released findings have released findings saying that it was exploded. And
0: we will go into, yeah, it was exploded and not an accident.
3: Right. I've actually seen like very recently, like in the past two days, like people on Twitter Mm. who are like awesome people being like, actually, you know, maybe the pipeline just, it just fucking leaked Mm. from, I guess, like turning the tap low and turning the tap hot. Right, yeah. Which I thought you could already do and not have it blow up. Right. Spectacularly.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you know those Russians. they were all in the vodka while they were various other russian stereotypes about how they can't do things supposedly
3: gosh so what we do know about the explosions from various non-state sources and data on the bombing is that the first explosion started at 203 (laughs) a.m on september 26 2022 and we know this because a 2.3 in local magnitude that's like we say richter scale but that's turns out it's not the richter scaling yeah. but call it local magnitude but it, in just richter scale for short a 2.3 richter scale disturbance was detected by danish seismologists and others uh, on Bornham island that wasn't on Bornham island but it was detected from there and this was corresponds because they can triangulate where the disturbance came from by comparing their various seismographic charts and yeah. those different sites they triangulated to the exact location of the first known leak, mm-hmm. which is southeast of the Danish island of Bornum. Yes. A name I'm going to butcher like the whole rest of the time. I mean, who can pronounce Danish stuff? Right. Kierkegaard, come on. Mm-hmm. So that. Site Southeast, I'm just going to refer to as the Southeast site. That disturbance, that waveform on the seismograph that created was 2.3 on the Richter scale, had the appearance, they said, of an underwater explosion, which they see actually like fairly often because there's so much crap from World War II, World, right. World War I, and elsewhere yeah. that ships from the Swedish Navy, Danish Navy, Polish people have to go there and mm. blow up. And there's also training exercises. So it was
0: pipe A of Nord Stream 2.
3: Yeah, Pipe A of Nord Stream 2 was the part that was damaged in that first explosion in the southeast quadrant, mm-hmm. southeast site. The disturbance of this magnitude is usually, and there's a big asterisk with this, correlated with explosive charges that are equivalent to between 500 and 1,000 kilograms mm-hmm. of TNT, which is T. In other words, it would have to be over 1,000 pounds of explosives. Mm-hmm. And I say this asterisk on there because as I found out to to a near aneurysm-inducing degree, <laughs> uh, it's really hard to calculate from local magnitude how big mm. an explosion was that caused it. And I don't mean it could be anything, but you have to f- know things like the specific type of rock that it's mm. going through and the salinity of the water. Yeah. It turns out more salinity means it has a greater of local magnitude and can throw things off less salinity like you have in the baltic sea actually lessens the magnitude because it diffuses the shock wave
0: so that, that that oliver alexander guy said that the salinity talk was uh pure gibberish
3: now apparently salinity comes in, in all kinds of places from like whether you could detect the bomb easily yeah i mean to it, like whether it's simply easy to see or not in the water yeah
0: so was he just just saying that he uh,
3: doesn't know, and I mean, like, yeah. in case you haven't noticed, neither P- Peter nor me are experts on uh, explosives
0: or the sea
3: diving,
0: uh, physics,
3: science of any kind. Science, no, mm. amateur historians. Yes, yeah. or in Peter's case, more professional. And mm. I'm, I'm a criminal obsessive, mm. but we just hope that our uh, obsessive degree of reading shit mm. will let us know stuff. But yeah, I don't think that Oliver Alexander guy is an expert either. Mm the the point being is that for the most part the german intelligence experts that have quoted, been quoted on this thought it was about 500 kilos of tnt did at least one of the explosions mm-hmm. but from i've seen you know quotes all over the place as to like stuff in the magnitude of like two thousand kilograms mm-hmm. or five thousand kilograms creating the same richter scale reading so, yeah, so. the point is it was big yeah. it was a lot of explosives yeah now the second explosions uh, occur at 7.03 PM, exactly 17 hours later. I'm pointing this out because the first one occurred at 2.03, so three on the hour there. Mm-hmm. Seismologists detected another seismic disturbance, and this was a 2.1 on the Richter scale. This corresponds to an explosive charge within a similar order of magnitude as the first, but actually 50% smaller. is mm-hmm. the Richter scale, is a logarithmic scale Mm. which is enough to drive you insane so just in case you're keeping track that first explosion the southeast quadrant was um 1.5 times the size of the second explosion that was detected Mm -hmm. the seismologist described this signal as appearing to also contain more than one explosion and this is confirmed by the facts in the ground that are observed because there's simultaneous damage from these explosions to Nord Stream one pipes A and B mm. and Nord Stream two pipe pipe A again.
0: Okay. So there's two explosive events. Yes. One was one bomb on A, and the next 17 hours later. What was it 17? Yeah, 17 yes. hours later, was multiple bombs on both A and B.
3: A and B of Nord Stream one and,
0: and Nord Stream two.
3: And A of Nord Stream 2. There no, so no explosions at all on pipe B yeah. at either of these times.
0: Okay. So there was one explosive event first that was just a single explosion, then a second explosive event that was multiple explosions on yeah. multiple pipelines.
3: And uh, this second explosive event with multiple explosions, this bombing was in the uh, what was northeast of Bornholm Island. Okay. It's still in an area that's called the Bornholm Basin, or I'm mm-hmm. more generalizing there, but it's near the Bornholm Basin, yeah. like a consistent depth of like 80 meters. Mm-hmm. And as discovered by the Swedish magazine Expressen and Danish police on October 2222, a 50-meter gap was torn by this second explosion at the northeast site in one of the pipes of Nord Stream One. Mm-hmm. So that's just one of the bombs mm-hmm. that did that damage or Mm -hmm. one of the explosive events that we saw in that second kind of wave did that damage blowing away 50 meters which is over 164 feet of Mm. pipe no direct damage uh, of course was done to Nord Stream 2 pipe B Mm. and while the specifics on the details of this damage are kind of scarce it's described as massive explosions quote and quote gross sabotage again this kind of converges with the estimates for the payload amounts of uh, that 2.1 local magnitude being like somewhere like uh, approaching like a metric ton of TNT, which kind of just uses the, the all-around grade or standard for right. explosives. Right.
0: Or presumably a smaller amount of a more potent explosive, but either way, a large yeah. amount. Of
3: so explosives. like if, if it was C4, for example, C4 has about 72% the explosive yield of TNT, so one metric ton of TNT would be 720 kilos of C4, okay. or like over 1,400 pounds. Yeah. So,
0: you know, other than, so there was a the metric evidence. I could tell you there was an explosion, but I mean, it's all underwater. How can you collect evidence, any other kind of evidence? If, if things are in the, you can't get things back from the
3: ocean. This, uh, this so yes yeah, so, so this part actually kind of took us, took me back at least to, uh, not long ago, we did our episode on the uh, the Lockerbie mm. disaster and kind of the meticulous collecting of bits and bobs of evidence that were spread across the entire width of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by, and not just this case, but I've listened to interviews and like a couple of podcasts. I'm kind of surprised by the consistency with which like FBI evidence recovery experts, are just like absolutely like smirking with delight on the fact that everyone and I mean like murderers oh yeah gangsters gangsters uh soldiers mm-hmm. bank robbers just have a baby-brained object mm, in permanence yeah. when it comes to when I throw something in the water it's gone yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. on forever so it turns out uh divers with submersibles and training in a stable water environment that is you know not not a big storm not a whole lot of tidal prat- things and apparently like around Born Island there's like not a whole whole lot of tidal mm. change and uh you know not a whole lot of salinity either mm. which I think would affect corroding of evidence yeah, yeah. but particularly when you're talking about mechanical parts and machined objects and circuitry right they can find that shit yeah. and they,
0: they not biodegradable
3: yeah they love finding that stuff
0: mm. uh
3: and we we really uh we really underestimate the ability of people to find stuff at the bottom of bodies of water mm. so uh, as we'll talk about in, in with Ivy Bell's uh saturation di- saturation divers there actually recovered a, about a million pieces separate pieces of a missile mm. as a side project to their mission so one should expect that any explosive device of size you know obviously if it's a tiny explosive device you know a little like james bond style mm. you know blinking yeah, yeah. watch with, attached to a, a brick of something that you couldn't find it but any explosive device of size right scale you're going to find parts yes you might even find you know a tool that fell mm-hmm. or something like that yeah. used to solder in place you know part of an oxygen torch mm-hmm. carried by a diver
0: their cigarettes that they were smoking <laughs> down there while they were working.
3: Yeah, you need you need nicotine to yeah,
0: keep, going. keep going. Yeah, eight hours down at the bottom. That's pretty crazy.
3: Yeah, and I, I'm sorry that none of the awesome people picked up that you can have underwater cigarettes. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of obvious. Kind of embarrassing, science.
0: guys. Jesus.
3: So in November of 2022, the Swedish security services added on quite a bit of evidence, but in a very very tight-lipped way. Uh, they announced that they had recovered what they explicitly identified as foreign objects, i.e., not part of the pipeline that tested positive for explosive residue. In other words, they found bomb parts. I feel mm-hmm. confident saying this they found components of the explosive device that was used. What this also means is that they no doubt tested with very sensitive, very expensive. Devices usually detect the chemical residues that have been imprinted by an explosion uh, at force, heat, on the surrounding objects and debris by a chemical explosion. So the Swedish police likely know from this physical evidence what type of explosive was used um, because they can compare that kind of chemical signature they get on that to a a whole lot of standards that they test for with explosives i thought this at the time of the release but i was hoping for like a more definitive something more definitive to leak out like what kind of bomb was it what mm-hmm. kind of explosives did you find or could you show us of some of the stuff that was recovered but what they likely know is at least something that indicates the manufacturer origin of mm-hmm. the foreign parts of the device yeah now this might be like in Lockerbie, like a part of a printed circuit board and yeah even it and the thing is is like even if you were to scrub out like any type of serial number and so on to make it untraceable like you can match up components and this this is actually the type of footwork that a lot of these national police agencies and investigative agencies right. live for yeah is being able to to compare types and, mm-hmm. and narrow this down From millions of things in the artifact universe Mm. that people have created over time to a specific point. Every object around you was manufactured at a specific time. And can bear marks of that.
0: Yeah. And generally by somebody who's like working at public and not, not, you know, you can't just make your own circuit boards mostly you, or you can, but you need to make them out of things that come from somewhere else. You can't control the entire chain.
3: Yeah, I mean, the 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 only, there, there's some historical exceptions, but not on something of this scale. Like, yeah. the, the more you scale a bomb like this up, the more you're going to need to use larger industrial components, the more you can't make sure yourself. Yeah, It's funny, it actually reminds me that in the Unabomber case, they, you know, to show a counterexample, I guess, they thought that whoever the Unabomber was had access to an industrial force because he was able to, Get the aluminum up to such a high temperature mm. but even though they knew that he was making everything else himself and then it turned out that Ted Kaczynski being a really really smart guy was just able to stoke and stoke and stoke a fire to get the aluminum yeah. up to a really really high temp mm. uh, but that's not the case here so the, the Swedes get pretty tight-lipped about it in very
0: Swedish fashion. I you need to put the girl with the dragon tattoo on the case. She can <laughs> figure it out.
3: Figure it out. Just back now. I, I think it's through political considerations here. Uh, I, they know it came from a NATO country. Obviously, if the Swedes had found, like, Russian bomb components on there, we mm-hmm. would just all hear about it. They had no stake in the Nord Stream pipeline and didn't r- do anything other than run through a Swedish economic zone, not even mm-hmm. their territorial waters. And the central government's trying desperately to get into NATO, right. even if it means shipping over every yeah. last curd that Erdogan wants to right. imprison or kill. Yes. Um, but that by itself doesn't say which NATO country may have mm-hmm. done it. So should we get into the the Hirsch scenario, the, the speed run here? Yeah, let's take a break for a second. Let's let's take a break. It's a good time.
1: survival of the human race. The Navy, whose defense needs require it to operate in all the oceans of the world, has a major stake in improving man's capacity to work continuously in an ocean environment. To this end, it has brought together scientists of many disciplines to advance the limits of oceanographic knowledge and improve our underwater technologies. These men are a far cry from the old hard hat divers of the past. They are highly trained individuals who will be able to spend much of their lives working under seas with sophisticated tools on a complex variety of tasks. But working down here is extremely difficult. Ocean waters are 800 times denser than air. Every movement is slow, laborious. The five physical senses are diminished or abolished. Vision, hearing, smell, taste, and touch are all affected to varying degrees and must be restored or improved by mechanical or electronic means.
3: I suppose we should actually talk in a little bit of detail about uh what is the Hirsch scenario here
0: the Hirsch theory of the crime you know, yeah go for
3: it so Hirsch's theory I mean it's it's Hirsch's r- reporting I'll 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 dignify it with that like it's Hirsch's reporting mm-hmm. as to what he was told yes happened. is that in 2021 in the lead up to the Russian invasion of in Ukraine so we're talking like the the last quarter of 2021 that the Biden administration was trying to prepare for the invasion they were worried that Russia could at some point just kind of break Germany's paramount role in the European wing of this, the European wing Mm -hmm. of the alliance in any joint US-European response to counter Russia by simply turning off the gas when it it made it politically unviable for a democratically elected German prime minister to say, no, we don't want Russian gas and we want to continue supplying arms to Ukraine. That could become very politically tricky for people who are struggling to, you know, have jobs or heat their homes or, right. you know, don't want to have an economy uh, of freezing into, uh Now, this gets a little abstract. According to Hirsch, the Biden administration, going back to policy for all the way back in the Bush administration and cons- consistently through Obama and Trump, opposed the Nord Stream gas pipeline, and specifically the opening of a second set of pipelines, Nord Stream 2, which had just finished construction in 2021 and 2022 they openly said this and he asked members of his administration like and specifically Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland mm-hmm. to see if they could prepare a working group of national security advisors and people from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and CIA operations people is there a way to take out this pipeline and mm-hmm. the way it was talked about according to Hirsch and subsequent interviews is do we want a solution that is reversible, like sanctions, or irreversible? And this task force was designed to find the irreversible solution: how to take out the Nord Stream pipelines. There just, there just is no Nord Stream pipeline. Anymore. Mm. Well, there's too many
0: pipelines, and they're not connected
3: together. <laughs> like, yeah, like a Rube Goldberg machine. The gas just goes around and around. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Or just into the the Baltic, <laughs> yeah. poisons the fishes or whatever it does. Yeah, technically,
3: there's still a pipeline. It yeah. just has big holes in it but no no actually this 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 plan destroyed the whole ability of the pipeline unless you're because the salinity destroys the pipes yeah yeah and my understanding is that it will
0: cost like hundreds of millions of dollars to fix if they ever do yeah
3: like their initial estimate was 500 million and that's that's a lot that's how initial estimates work yeah know they They go they 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 don't go down Mm -hmm. now this team as the story goes has one member who's a historically inspired guy a uh who knew about a particular now declassified now public operation called ivy bells Mm -hmm. which involved the use of a naval diving team going into deep water Mm -hmm. and this going into this depth of water changes everything in order to mount a wiretap on Soviet communications on the eastern side of the Soviet Union during the Cold War and we're going to go into more this in more detail oh yeah Um, yes Ivy Bells is really Mm. this inspiration this naval diving team story that this officer was aware of provided the incentive to ask hey Could we do that again? They use this Navy diving team trained out of Panama City, Florida. That's where the Navy Diving Salvage Center is and where the Navy Experimental Diving Unit is. Could we go ahead and maybe task a hand-selected group of divers to go down to the Nord Stream pipeline at one of its points, attach explosives instead of a wiretap, and uh, blow it up? Mm -hmm. And the answer after talking with their, their experts both here and with NATO ally Norway, who appears to have been hand selected partly because we apparently were well assured of Norway's cooperation. They're extremely anti-Russian in their government there. As we said, in coordination with NATO ally Norway, who's completely on board with whatever operation the US is doing, but also more importantly, has abundant experience with operational saturation diving from their own experience having a uh, Navy uh, mine clearance and explosive ordnance clearance divers and having loads of commercial divers and almost all like these commercial divers are former Navy divers, by the way, <laughs> yeah. doing saturation dives and deep dives mm-hmm. uh, where they're going to depths where they have to use what are called mixed gases, like helium and oxygen, mm-hmm and for sometimes for very extended periods of time and that takes a whole different set of expertise yeah it's very and
0: infrastructure
3: infrastructure to even keep your divers alive right so that kind of expertise and that kind of ground knowledge of the waters they probably have much better survey tables of yeah. the areas than we do I I think that the Norway I. Norway as an ally thing here is plausible. But according to Hersh's account, they reached out to Norway and the Norwegians came up with the idea of a set of dives off of the coast of Bornholm Island, where in fact the explosions took place. And that we test a set of Navy divers from probably sent them off to train in Panama City, hand selected. One would think from Navy EOD teams, explosive Mm -hmm. total teams or what they call mine clearance in most of the Anglo countries, and mm-hmm. that these divers went on a Norwegian Ulta-class mine hunter. Mm-hmm. That's a type of ship, and during the Boltops 2022 set of operations, so a bunch of exercises where you have loads of ships in the area from mm-hmm. tons of different allied countries, this Norwegian ship with our divers on it was cleared to go over to these sites with, a, with some kind of cover. Mm-hmm. Now, Hirsch described it as... The U.S. government informed in general terms the Swedish government and the Danish government mm-hmm. that we were going to be in the area doing diving operations. So something along the lines of like, hey, just so you know, we're doing a joint operation. We don't want anyone to know about it. Right. We're informing you, however, that we're in the area. Mm-hmm. So you don't think that anything suspicious and, you know, you know open fire. Guys. Mm-hmm. They then, in an operation that took no more in Hirsch's estimation than a couple hours, went from one site to the other doing repeated Deep dives at 80 meters using a combination gas combination in their tanks. They're small portable tanks of helium, oxygen, and nitrogen, mm. uh, which is known to drive divers' triplex. Yeah, get into that later. It's unclear from Hersh's account if this is after setting the bombs or just before they were about to set the bombs. But then the Biden administration says, "Hey, wait! Mm. I don't want you to set these things on a 48-hour timer." Mm-hmm. I want to have the option to basically like remote control yeah pull the trigger myself Mm -hmm. on these bombs and decide when and if they go off at all Uh there was tremendous anxiety among the team of cia operation people as to whether this could even be done whether they could have a method of detonating these things remotely mm-hmm. and whether they could leave such like a detonating device in the Baltic Sea water for so long. There's an illusion in Hirsch's account to having to adjust the explosives to the salinity of the water around them that we'll talk about. But this operation did occur. They they managed to plant the bombs and they also planted a detonating device that could later be detonated by a sonar emitting buoy mm. with a specific kind of musical code right you can't was, just you
0: can't just call it in with a cell phone
3: right now three months later in september is the bolt ops operation happens in june mm-hmm. three months later in september biden does give the order to go ahead and set off these bombs mm-hmm. and a norwegian owned and controlled pa poseidon aircraft mm-hmm. uh, a submarine hunter flies over the site or somewhere in the middle of the sites and drops off mm-hmm. a Sono buoy, which is a buoy that hangs in the water and it emits a sonar signal. Mm-hmm. And that is what triggers the timers on the bombs and they go off mm-hmm. in exactly the way that they went off. Mm-hmm. That's the account. In subsequent interviews, he's he's also filled in on other parts of this account. Like he doesn't include in his original article something that I think is rather important. And I thought I would mention it now, which is he said, like, almost in like desperation of like no I know the details listen Mm, to me yeah he says that the CIA had to fly in a what he termed a compression chamber in order for these divers to do this dive Um, and that makes a lot of sense and we'll we'll go into that but those are the details as he as he laid them out Mm -hmm. and he was immediately hit with what I will deal with now or what we'll talk about now Mm -hmm. which is a lot of dumb criticisms Mm -hmm. before getting into what we like to talk about which is history yes so the dumb criticism a lot a lot of our listeners and readers kind of pounce on things that were I think in the heat of Hirsch's locomotive stream of thoughts. Yes, he's like, a, he's a fast talker. Yeah, which it's is a, yeah. you know he he obviously has a great memory. Mm-hmm. He's not read he's not reading off his fucking like notes of right. interviews. He's yeah. recounting, mm-hmm. and he's also not an actual military person. He's a yes. reporter, even though he's obviously like. I'm just going to say, Hersh or, or seems to be like a little bit of a Warner, a little bit of a hard worker. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he sometimes misspeaks and conflates two things he read from his notes previously, or he speaks kind of sweepingly and loosely. So, like, he'll say Panama City when he accidentally meant Panama Papers, yeah. right? Yeah. He said, like, Zelensky, you know, it was in the Panama City thing. He actually means Panama Papers. Yeah,
0: we all know what that means.
3: So. Yeah. The, the criticisms are fundamentally like just taking the task, in my view, like Hirsch's commentary. Yeah. On his information, right, and are not taking to task his source information. These particular critics, yes. So just to rattle off some of them, for example, on Democracy Now, he said the the name of the ship the divers were deployed on was named the Alta, and in the piece, it's explicitly it's an Alta class Mm -hmm. minesweeper.
0: Yeah, called something else.
3: Yeah, called something else. There, there is a there is an Alta class minesweeper. The first that was called the Alta, yeah, but it hasn't, yeah. been anywhere in a long time right, because it's old all this <laughs> so old. Old and it was decommissioned. on democracy now he also referred to the the ship the Minesweeper as a submarine hunter let me know if a Minesweeper can also be called a submarine hunter but it seems like he completed the, the plane the mm-hmm. Poseidon which is a submarine hunter yeah with the ship which is Minesweeper mm-hmm. um and then in a February 21st interview on Spectator's Americano podcast he said the locations chosen around Borholm are the shallowest in the Baltic and for the record I I think looking at a topographical map and I'm actually going to include a topographical map and mm-hmm. the, the show notes here you can see that they were chosen for depth reasons mm. and that they're not the deepest but they're not the shallowest I think it was probably that they were the shallowest location that worked for the purpose that they were selected for because mm. it does seem like that boredom basin is like a very consistent 80 meters in both of the locations chosen so mm. I think that was why but and that may have been described to him as like that was the shallowest we could find for what we were doing mm. in the Baltic, but yeah, they're not the shallowest in the Baltic. And then he said, in the same interview, for the first time ever, they were going to do uh, exercises at ball tops where they drop mines and detonate them. I've even seen some like kind of bad faith criticisms of this quote. Some misconstrued to me that like Hirsch is asserting that they never did any anti mine right, yeah. operations. Exercises at Baltop before, and right. he's it's also clear from the same in other interviews that he's aware that they do anti mine exercises at Baltop, mm. uh, and this multi force operation in the Baltic, uh, exercises in the Baltic. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't say that, he said that in this. For the first time ever, they did these specific operations where they proposed doing this specific operation that would provide sufficient cover for why they were having divers go into the yes. water, to go out, yeah, not appearing to test anything, right? Like, not not doing any kind of yeah, yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is like whoever did this operation had some kind of cover, mm-hmm. so maybe he's wrong about that. Like maybe that, like they just expanded an operation, of, uh, an exercise or whatever at ball tops, mm-hmm. but like. Eh. I think it's a dumb criticism. Yeah, and I mean, so so let's talk about what's possible with the dive. Yeah, like anyway, fr- this is
0: where we get a little bit into yeah yeah the weeds of the the technicalities, I suppose.
3: Yeah, so we've kind of surveyed what we know about the crime scene here, but we about like the deep background of the mm-hmm. crime scene because before even approaching whether Hirsch's dive scenario is possible with divers going in so before approaching Kirsch's deep dive I thought we would talk about uh how what any account of what happened would have to satisfy in order to be uh a possible account from the known evidence so not just what the Swedes found but like what about this crime mm-hmm. would have to happen in order for it to occur this is the this is the question that has bugged me or docked me, and why I've actually kept, I thought until recently, pretty quiet about this. Mm. Uh, which is, are there aspects of the evidence itself on the seafloor and elsewhere that were left behind that would exclude some of the suspected parties, like Poland or Ukraine or like a private diving team or whatever, mm. and leave? others or leave one because as uh, doctor professor detective existential detective josiah thompson says things happen one way mm. if you're left with hypotheticals it's only because you don't have all of the historical data yeah it's lost to time or some of it's Entropy. right now i admit being uh really naive on this point until i read the hirsch article and did my own research in part because the established media Um, especially the New York Times, made this sound like a crime scene anyone could have done. The more I researched this, the more it seemed obvious that nah, no, this was a very special set of people. But here's what I mean. Like the the New York Times in their article uh, entitled, In the Nord Stream Mystery, Public Seabed Provides a Nearly Ideal Crime Scene. They said, more than 15 years ago, when the Nord Stream gas pipeline between Russia and Germany was little more than idea a swedish government study warned of the risks inherent in running a critical piece of energy infrastructure on the baltic sea floor the pipeline will be vulnerable to even the most rudimentary form of sabotage the analyst wrote and underwater surveillance would be nearly impossible mm-hmm. the 2007 study written by the swedish defense research agency even paused a scenario quote one diver would be enough to set an explosive device today European investigators face almost exactly that same scenario and this is a deeply deceptive passage mm. because while that might be true of like hypothetical sabotage yeah. like whether whether one person on one dive could go down and damage the pipeline mm-hmm. it's not true of this explosion yes. set of explosions, as it must have happened, as you and I have learned when you're talking about precision explosive placement at these depths, you enter into an entirely different world as to who would have the experience, the logistics, and would need not to just sabotage the pipeline, but to demolish it, like demolish it in yeah. the way that it was done. Uh, so we're going to talk about like what I will call like the requirements, uh-huh. right? The requirements of anyone who, who did this. And I think it narrows down the scenario as it happened. So I think the suspect party, as we talked about, must have delivered several very large payloads of explosives. So like a lot of conventional high explosives were used. And that just shows an intention by itself. The intention was to destroy the pipeline. Yes. A lot of times I think when people say like uh, the leaks in the pipeline was retro responsible, like we leak is supposed to like serve as like, you know how uh, prosecutors in like the Jeffrey McDonald case or one of these other like staged cases where they're like, ah, a, a it was a black man who was robbing me yeah. and my wife. I wasn't killing her for insurance. They talk about their wounds. It's like superficial. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, we have a case in Boston, actually, where the guy did literally exactly that and made a superficial wound you on himself. himself. That's how I feel like they talk about leaks. But these weren't superficial damages yeah. to the pipeline. They blew it up. It doesn't work anymore. So whoever did this, did it with the intention of blowing up the pipeline and hoping that the salinity and enough damage, like mm-hmm. this pipeline, is has gone forever. Yeah. The the payloads were placed at between 230 and 260 feet down in water on the pipeline with no misses at the pipe. Like mm-hmm. all these explosions hit. They put this thing flush on the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether the submersibles can do that, but... To me, it's the biggest evidence that they didn't drop bombs on there, like drop them from a submersible. That they were instead placed and attached, and that kind of precision is exactly the same reason why they a lot of these oil companies will use you know remote operated vehicles. But that's why they have commercial divers doing shifts of six to eight hours welding shit onto pipes and so on, and not using various types of robots besides the expense. Is because humans are precise they can yeah. respond to the situation like, we don't know whether a submersal
0: submersal could do it but we do know a diver
3: could yes or,
0: or a properly
3: trained diver a properly trained equipped and supported divers yes. could it's like of of the things you could grab off the rack that are definitely possible mm-hmm. it is the most possible yes it's the old tried and true way and mm-hmm. it's the way that they re- repair pipelines that have already blown up. Mm-hmm. It's how they sent people down to get the evidence. Now, I should say, and we'll, th- this goes to requirement two, that this is not the same as saying like the same methods that are used for commercial saturation diving yeah. are the same that have to be used for an operation like this. You actually have to use several other things. It's much mm-hmm. more complicated. So no less than three were used, uh, three explosive payloads were used, and each of these might consist in more than one explosive device. And as I, as we said, the Nord Stream one, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline sites that were exploded, like the southeast site and the northeast site, those are wide apart. Mm-hmm. Transportation divers from the southeast site to the northeast site, or vice versa, it requires going to that deep dive depth of mm. eighty meters more than one time at least three times by my account and that would make a minimum of three dives and uh i think this requires a little bit of explanation Mm -hmm. but with diving you both have to do when you're doing this type of deep diving it turns out you have to have both compression and decompression Mm -hmm. and you can have various technological fixes that help with both Mm -hmm. but the key thing here is that you have to compress the diver at a safe rate to get down to that depth yeah and then if you're going to bring them back up to the surface you have to decompress them with a certain time yeah which has led to some like awesome people saying like this is impossible it takes so long to get a person down and then get them back up because the usual way like a commercial dive to these type to this type of pipeline would take days yeah like they would send a person down at a slow rate of like hours and hours they would do all their shifts at the bottom they would stay compressed Mm -hmm. and live in like a compression habitat Mm -hmm. with the other commercial divers working on the pipeline and then uh only after everything was done would they decompress them Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and you're talking about three different dives we having to, to bring them down and send them up the only way you can do that of course is if you were to compress them to the rate that they're going to be at the bottom of the sea there 80 meters deep and then have them stay compressed and then go to the next site and the next site and those all have to be of a similar depth
0: yeah and you would need to get them I mean I guess you could swim but that sounds unreliable yeah they Uh, need a boat yeah I mean
3: they need a boat anyways already for the explosives yeah I guess part of the reason I mentioned this is you know I had this idea. in my head before reading about what it would take to dive this deep that you know you had these like like surly scarred like Baltic people who, yeah. who could have just been employed by anybody right you know and they you know they get out there on their little like rubber boat
0: yeah like a zodiac or something yeah yeah and
3: then they they dive down yeah and and swim to the Norwegian. no you, you need a fucking like diving bell
0: yeah you need a lot of stuff in order to come back alive. I mean, I suppose, I mean, you would need all that stuff to survive even one of those dives. If you're gonna do three of them, in theory, you could take your stuff and plant the bombs on three different occasions.
3: Yes, yeah, and I mean, here's the thing, and and I think this goes to like requirement five, and I understand that this is more of an, like an inference requirement. Yeah. um, Than like a hard stop, like this has to have happened the explosives yes. or something like that but i think this has to have been done with some amount of speed mm-hmm. because the longer they're there the more likely they are to get noticed mm-hmm. and the more likely it is for someone to be able to report something even if it's like to report that they were there under a cover mm-hmm. um like under a legitimate cover
0: here's a question yeah
3: so would it be possible to do this from
0: a submarine yes okay so, like in theory, if you really want to go the Russophobic route or the the Russian blaming route, could this have been done by like a Russian team on operating out of a submarine?
3: Because, um, like, presumably a Russian surface ship. So, would get so that's a yes, but and
0: uh, okay. Well, we can we, go with that later. We,
3: want, well, well, no. I mean, so um, Ivy Bell's, which we're going to talk about, okay. was yeah. done from the submarine. So okay. we, we will get into that. But even even with the submarine, you need extra. Equipment yeah a compression chamber right and habitat yeah, and you they can't have to just live for, so. for at least the 20 hours they would need to decompress yes. from a dive of this depth. Uh-huh. And you would need that compression diving bell in order mm-hmm. to get them down at a fast rate. If you're doing this yeah. fast, because that's the thing, is you could do this whole job without any compression chamber or Uh, necessarily a high-tech diving belt if you're willing to do it over like a whole series of days
0: yeah and you're finding public basically yeah
3: you know in a heavily heavily trafficked area as keeps getting pointed out by everyone yeah you know and i I just i think it's impossible to have done with the stealth that it was if it was done over a series of days or a series of separate dies i think okay that's the one inferential part that i think we could definitely be taking the task on yeah is that this had to be done fast and if it was done fast then that brings in a whole set of 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 sub requirements like compression chamber and a compression diving bell right divers that are trained for saturation diving Mm -hmm. um and even though this isn't technically saturation diving like none of them are underneath for 24 hours Mm -hmm. they have to compress like saturation divers and live like saturation divers for the duration of like the two three four hour operation
0: so just to just to be clear for the listener because I don't know how much people know about diving I don't necessarily know that much but basically what we're talking about here is at the depths at which the Nord Stream pipelines ran anyone who dives down there the pressures involved Like Isaac's been saying, you have to go down there slow in order to uh, acclimate your body to it, you have to come up slow. Uh, you need special mix in order so that your body doesn't have some terrible things happen to it. You know, nitrogen bubbles forming in your body, you yeah. know, your bones getting all messed up,
3: et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you could just have them burst. Like, you could just die in loads of horrible ways yes. uh, besides getting, like, the bends.
0: And what, what Isaac is – and if you're going to be down there for a long time – then so what what Isaac's talked about is saturation diving yes. where you need to I, as I take it you you basically need to live in it's not enough to just dive down slowly or come back up slowly you need to basically be in an environment of uh, a specialized pressure level so right. they create these containers basically these little habitats for you to kind of live in for days or in some cases with some dives uh, weeks while yeah. your body depressurizes basically or repressurizes
3: yeah i mean they they essentially kind of experimented with all of this during ivy belts so the u.s navy did yeah so there is one final interesting requirement here um and i think this is a this is an inductive leap on our part too but the detonation timing is very funny mm-hmm. uh the explosives were most likely done with timers and but detonated by a single signal simultaneously mm-hmm. and i say this because they both happen to be at the o3 mark of the hour mm-hmm. now i can't say this with any certainty at all and i don't think we we stake any huge claim on it because right. we don't know if it was like was it oh three and and oh three seconds right. or whatever or oh three and it's, zero how seconds. precise is it yeah how precise is it so miracle mindset hat on here like we can't rule out that it's coincidence that they're exactly 17 hours apart but it certainly is a point in favor of it being detonated at the same time mm. and then just starting a t- like say a two-hour timer on one device and a uh two-hour timer, or rather, rather like a 19-hour timer on mm. one like these divers
1: must interrupt their work at frequent intervals to reascend to the surface because of human limitations This takes time. Although man can descend quickly because he can adapt easily to increasing pressure, he must ascend slowly to avoid the bends or decompression damage. Now, however, a new diving technology called saturation diving has been developed, which greatly increases man's time underwater. Much of the physiological research on it has been pioneered by a naval medical doctor Captain George Bond, director of hyperbaric research at the Naval Coastal Systems Laboratory in Panama City, Florida. As you have seen, conventional diving techniques utilize a great deal of time in decompression and are somewhat inefficient. We hope that we have overcome these problems to a large extent with the introduction of saturation diving. In this laboratory, we feel that we are particularly fortunate in that the engineers and the physiologists work literally side-by-side. Side. 60 feet, okay in the chamber. 60 feet, okay in the chamber. Stand by for a minute. What are man's physiological limits in high pressures on the ocean floor? How does his body respond? His lungs? What happens to his blood? What are the best proportions of oxygen?
3: I I think a lot of these questions about diving and deep diving, uh, which involves going down into an extremely dark alien world that could completely kill you, or Mm -hmm. easily found out, could actually be kind of illustrated by uh, talking about Operation Ivy Bells. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, this is a history podcast, of course, not a news podcast, uh, and where we use history to understand social reality, but uh, Hirsch also mentioned, of course, that Ivy Bells was the previous similar time in which a u.s navy diving team in cooperation with the cia and in that instance also the national security agency the nsa uh did a series of saturation or deep dives Mm -hmm. not trying to conflate the two but deep dives in 1971 and that because this random unnamed cia operations officer had heard of ivy bells the agency floated this as the ideal way to carry out this mission of the Nord Stream bombing.
0: Now, did, did Hirsch bring up Ivy
3: Bells? Yes, others? he oh, did. I can't remember. I, know, I read it, but I couldn't remember. He, he had like a little like kind of capsule. Yeah, style. okay. Yeah. Okay. In other words, because of the very fact that Ivy Bells happened and was successful and is revered in the CIA and mm. NSA and U.S. Navy, I mean, it is on their website. It's like a fantastic success. Mm. That and, and because it was so revolutionary for the time, it provides a groundwork for understanding how a crazy... Underwater mm. explosion caper like Nord Stream bombing could happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Also, it's it's an example that we do have that capability mm. <laughs> in the U.S. because there is not really a whole lot of mentions of similar operations. Quick in-out dives, and I, I have to say, you know, I'm impressed by IV Bells. It's a it's a spectacular caper. It's a human technological feat. It's an Ocean's Eleven type job. It's insane.
0: And nobody died, right?
3: No, no one died. Yeah,
0: they were killing people. They didn't die. It's fine. It's yeah. fine to like it.
3: Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. So uh, transport yourself, listener, back to 1971. The bad 1971. Mm. Pentagon brass and United States military careerists are conducting an increasingly bad and bloody crusade on insurgent communist forces. And they equally see themselves arrayed against communist forces, pro as directed forces at home dedicated to sabotaging and undermining the war effort by protest, propaganda, exposure. And in this paranoid environment, you also, of course, have the president attempting to find dangerous information that could be used to compromise him. You get a sense of, uh, like, a besieged elite in a Mm -hmm. claustrophobic world that's kind of seeking to break through and find any way they could to know their opponent's next move. Like, they're stuck in, like, the conversation. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah or any of those 70s paranoia thrillers.
3: So, and, so it wasn't just like evil Nixon during this time who was like doing tapping. And mm-hmm. Nixon himself was actually subject to a spiring wow. found uh, By the very same chiefs of staff and Navy brass who would conceive of Operation Ivy of And this was called the Moore-Radford affair where a uh, naval petty officer, Radford, stole mm-hmm. National Security Council documents, specifically ones from like Henry Kissinger and some of the cabinet members. And uh, burn back so documents mm. that were meant to burn, thinking that Nixon's cabinet were like pink or a bunch of pink communist sympathetic one worlders mm. that he had to like break through and get into their yeah, decision making. Yeah. I'm gonna read a quote from the New York Times at this time from a little uh a little reporter named Seymour Hirsch, 1974. Mm during the period of Yeoman Radford's activities the White House was involved in intensely secret negotiations with China the Soviet Union and North Vietnam former White House aides acknowledge the details these talks were restricted to very few officials of the White House and of course then this Naval petty officer stole the documents for his naval superiors mm-hmm. so in this context, with all these secret negotiations, slaughter bombing in Cambodia and North Vietnam and Nixon using an array of spooky contractors to bogies, wrap on, and suppress opposition, mm-hmm. he also approved of a joint CIA-Navy-NSA operation using a newly re-outfitted nuclear submarine called the Halibut, mm. and conceived by the Navy brass who were sprying on them, mm. and deliberately kept it from the prying eyes of say, like, Congress right the halibut engaged in this secret operation tap into a, a newly discovered undersea communications cable between two soviet naval major soviet naval bases off the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula mm-hmm. in Soviet territorial waters and uh familiar people, to us all from risk yes uh for for people who haven't been paying playing risk against their siblings uh, particularly like me and Peter playing them against older sisters mm-hmm. growing up uh, that is on the farthest east coast of what is now Russia mm-hmm. so this was conceived of by those joint chiefs secretly and they secretly and clandestinely funneled funds. they like like hijacked an existing congressionally funded project for a naval undersea rescue program mm-hmm. into this secret wiretap project And it turns yeah. out that those two things with technologically dovetail really well together because mm-hmm. the same set of skills you need to rescue, say, um, downed submariners who are yeah. in, on a submarine trapped in the ocean with their air running out yeah. is the same that you need to send out divers to yeah. half a Soviet cable. Right. It's so all, most of the problem is just
0: being down there.
3: Yeah. Most of the problem is being down there and then coming up alive. Yeah. Or being down there and doing repeated dives. Right. But that also is a whole technical problem. Yeah. So, using these funds they appropriated from that undersea rescue program, they used a team of specialized divers trained in deep water saturation diving using a mix of oxygen and helium along with a portable compression chamber that was itself disguised as a mini submarine uh, to fit with the cover of the rescue program. And I, I think that context here is crucial because it, it expresses it's important for me how it expresses this like, like claustrophobic psychosphere. Of people in the commanding heights of the imperial apparatus at Mm. this time, we need to break through and like penetrate Mm. the brains of their opponents, find out how they're thinking, and the desire to kind of tunnel tunnel through with subterfuge and reappropriation all of the democratic and like international law barriers Mm. to the members of the apparatus, and even if it means, and I think this is also crucial, taking insane risks. Mm right like this operation was not like oh let's we we do this thing all the time let's let's do it boys it's a little bit more it's like a leap yeah so when they discovered this undersea cable in kamchatka they discovered it because of signs for fishermen that were like you know don't hit the cable i mean they were they were apparently like looking for this for a long time and then the story is the story at least is that one of these naval commanders who grew up along the mississippi like some mark twain character Mm -hmm was like, you know how we found that cable? I bet you they put up some uh, signs for fishermen. Mm. So those fishermen are not fucking up the cable. And it turned out they had some like warning signs in Russia. Like, you know, don't hit cable.
0: Right, because the cable has to get closer to the surface, I imagine, as it approaches land. Yes. Yeah, so
3: a fishing boat could clip it. Uh huh. Mm. So, but because this is such an inaccessible cable, it was down at 400 meters... Sorry, 400 feet. Mm-hmm. So much deeper than the depth of the orange Stream bottom. Yeah. It was actually on an unencrypted line. There's mm. no there's no need for like a Venona style, like decrypting for decades. It's just Soviet commanders talking to each other, shooting the shit.
0: Feels like an unforced error. Yeah.
3: But to uh, to even do the wiretapping, of course, they can't have divers like at the bottom of the sea of Kamchatka, like chopping open this cable. Right. Yeah. They're going to know that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So they had to invent an entire, well, they didn't invent it at this time. They had to make an entirely different device called mm. an induction tap.
2: Mm.
3: Now, Peter, do you know how an induction tap works?
0: Is it like Inception? Like you tap their brain while they're sleeping? You you, do, you have a mission in their Yeah, brain. we don't
3: know how induction tapping works. No, um, no, But here is the important part. An induction tapping device uh, uses an electronic process. Mm-hmm. Apparently have been around since like the thirty late 30s, early 40s. Uh, where you can put it on a transmission cable, say a phone line or uh, you know communications cable, mm-hmm. around the cable
2: mm-hmm.
3: and not inside the cable. So you, unlike a, a normal phone tap where you're like splitting yeah. the it cable like and, and tying something in like a bug or a recorder, mm-hmm. uh, an induction tap, you just put it around the cable itself and then assuming that everything goes right with the electricity, uh, it will then pick up the signal going through it mm-hmm. And the signal will continue right on as it was. So they built a, uh, by by they, I mean, Bell Labs built a huge induction tapping device for this very large undersea cable, Mm. as you can imagine, for a... Soviet naval base, and it will record monthly intervals of audio conversations on reels of magnetic tape. These tapes would then be collected by fresh diving teams who would be also brought along on submarines. So There's way more than just a halibut down there eventually.
2: Um,
3: Every month, like Watergate Perkalypse, basically. But uh, actually getting this device or any device, of course, onto the line was thought of as a near impossible feat involve working not just going down because I mean divers have been down to the depths like this since like the late 30s Mm -hmm. with huge diving suits and diving bells and then like very 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 slowly being brought back up Mm -hmm. with several stops called decompression stops at 121 meters uh but working at that level uh where it's one extremely dark Mm -hmm. and two the amount of pressure on the divers makes this a very dangerous thing due to the long periods of decompression and three, it's also extremely cold. Right. Yeah, it's way up north. Yeah, and besides it's that, just the the of sea is just extremely cold. And uh, because you need to use helium and oxygen, we can talk about this. Uh, the helium actually makes the heat diffuse from your body even faster. Oh. Huh. As a and, and, and like, what what happens if you like
0: slip with one of your tools and you puncture your fucking suit or something? Yeah. Like, there, there's there's no, so many things that can go wrong.
3: You can't just be like rapidly brought up. Instead, yeah. they have to have a whole set of techno like a whole extra wrapping of technological apparatuses yeah. to make sure you don't die yes it's so, like going to space basically. yeah no it, it is it is very much like going to space yeah. like you're dealing with totally different like pressures which are mm-hmm. almost like gravity in a sense yeah um yeah so how they pulled it off was the halibut deployed the divers from a pressurized chamber of London as mentioned they disguised as that submersible and that would stay pressurized to the depth that they were deploying them to mm-hmm. so skipping all those decompression stops and everything else two man teams would exit a a diving bell that came with this compression chamber and they were tethered to this and they would carry along their equipment in a very heavy pod with balloon-like buoy attached yes yeah. and I mean it should register in our minds that this is Probably how any diving team that did the Nord Stream bombing would have to carry the hundreds of pounds right, of yeah. bomb and devices. The divers needed to move freely. And so, unlike commercial saturation divers today who have like lines feeding them like gas and electricity and stuff like that, they would, while well, being tethered to the diving belt, would need to be able to freely move with mm-hmm. light ox- oxygen, I'm sorry, light mixed gas tanks. Yeah and they still had like heated suits the key to allowing this to happen allowing them to even go to that depth was a whole series of discoveries made by the naval diving Salvage center and specifically their unit NIDU, the navy experimental diving unit by a guy named george f bond mm-hmm. uh, using the correct equipment and a calibrated mix of breathing gases divers can remain in extremely deep locations for long periods of time provided they decompress slowly or remain in a chamber pressurized to that depth mm. after they dive down to that level. Once the body is at a certain depth for long enough, the tissues become saturated, hence the term saturation diving with mm. nitrogen, and the body's no longer affected by how long they're down there or how long they remain at that pressure. Yeah, So, at the point, they're just acclimated. Yeah, yeah, at that point, they're acclimated. The gas they breathe in is a low oxygen mixed gas with helium called heliox to prevent something called nitrogen narcosis the the rapture of the deep as mm. it's often called uh where basically the drivers divers if you're breathing nitrogen at that depth it works differently in your body and you become extremely drunk mm. so to speak you have tunnel vision mm. so uh this heliox gas which enabled them to survive at that depth however uh gives them like a squeaky Donald duck voice yeah yeah that's funny so to communicate with each other they needed another device they needed oh, okay. these scramblers that would l- basically like lower their voice so that they can understand the speech that they're saying to the other divers so many devices so many fucking boxes uh in addition to that they have double layered electrically heated suits to allow them to even be warm at that depth and they,
0: light i imagine you could was light. how difficult was light to provide it, all artificial light. Okay. Other yeah.
3: than that, you can see nothing. Yeah. It
0: is. But you black. could use a relatively normal light setup, or do you need like super special? You, you,
3: I mean, you need special underwater lighting. That's existed for a while. For a while. Okay. Yeah. So
0: that wasn't too bad.
3: Yeah. Interestingly, they they had an early unmanned yeah. underwater like remote operated mm-hmm. vehicle that went along with them. Uh-huh. So like they there actually theoretically it might be film of Ivy Bells somewhere. Uh, but it's all probably classified. I mean, half the project's still classified, oh, yeah. actually. So they could view the, the divers and like whether they had like red lights go off and need to be pulled back mm. or something like that if, they're done, if their suits were malfunctioning. Yeah. if they needed to. In 1972, uh, they actually had to go back and put on a new device because yeah. the old tap wasn't good enough. Bell Labs engineered a newer, better induction tapping device that had a miniature nuclear battery supply. Oh, wow. It was 20 feet long and weighed six tons. <laughs> But Man. importantly, the divers got it there. You know, like I I ran over and over like people talking about how impossible the Nord Stream attack was, and like the key thing is, is like it happened. Yeah, someone Somebody did it. Somebody did it. They they pulled it off. It happened. The proof is it blew up.
0: What I'm what I'm wondering if they're so like there's a natural angle that some of them are trying, which is kind of ludicrous, and then they the accident angle. And I wonder if some of them are just trying to angle for like. The russians did it with a submarine torpedo or something
3: yeah but it just doesn't look like it yeah right? no
0: I, I get that i'm um, i'm just i'm spitballing yeah. anyway
3: but yeah uh a a device this like much bigger i think than the ones used the Nordstrom bombing they they got that onto <laughs> and around a pipe yeah or cable rather although it seems like it's a cable in a pipe
0: Keep the thick, keep the keep stuff. the cable in the pipe.
3: Yeah. They did that on Ivy Bells.
0: Mm. And uh that was fifty years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was
3: 1971 and 72. And then they continued tapping it for a while. This was an uninhabited area. So just to go to like kind of the secrecy aspect of it and the stealth aspect of it, unlike the Baltic Sea, this is like a relatively uninhabited area. You have your like occasional mm-hmm. fishermen, yeah. Uh, but it's patrolled by Soviet subs. Yes. So they actually had to take a whole series of the secrecy aspects to it. Uh they were completely on outside the bounds of international mm-hmm. law they're not in some international waters like with nordstrom they're in soviet territorial waters yeah putting them bug on, on their cable mm-hmm. and stealing secrets uh if they were caught they absolutely would have been treated like youtube pilot gary powers like mm-hmm. they would have been put on trial yeah as spies in the soviet union like you mm-hmm. can be convicted put yeah. in prison that's to death mm-hmm. so we're describing a crime like this is a caper so to, to, to protect the secrecy of the project however the dive team on the Halvet did a whole second mission like a, a like a bonus mission like a new game plus that they got to do um because they had all this deep sea diving equipment mm-hmm. which is they gathered the fragmented parts of the Soviet cruise missile the SS N12 sandbox as we call it I think. And they found over a million parts in the area. I've seen some accounts that said two million, which was a Soviet naval testing range. So mm-hmm. This cruise missile they were firing out and like presumably fragmenting and blowing up in the ocean, and they gathered it up and they actually gathered enough to assemble one full missile. Oh wow! Not here, but Pretty like explosive. once they brought it all back and uh, they actually like made findings. They originally thought that this was like heat-seeking missile. This it turned out to be a, like a quasi-radar guided missile oh, once huh. they figured it out. So. Again, you can gather a lot of shit in the bottom of the mm, ocean. Yeah, But for all of these all of these security measures, uh, it's like... Yeah, why do we even know about it? It's kind of interesting. It's just on in break. Uh, so it got declassified in part because uh, the in the 80s, it was still classified. Like the, the main outlines, it didn't really become declassified until after the Cold War. That's how we know about it all. But the reason that it's mentioned at all, and that we would know about it enough to get it declassified, like historians get it declassified is because it came up during the trial of the guy who gave the secrets away mm-hmm. uh ralpel so after nine years of collecting tapes of secret on you know unencrypted soviet communications finding out the soviet's actual thought process where i, I mean i've seen a lot of accounts of like cold war historians, but they're like oh yeah this allowed us to see that the soviets were deeply afraid of us doing a yeah. first strike yeah and gen- just genociding the whole soviet union right and that they weren't trying to do that themselves mm-hmm. and the funny part is they're like yeah this helped de-escalate the cold war i'm like when did that happen
0: yeah when the yeah in the, you mean happen? in the 80s yeah
3: like, yeah last i checked they were they were tapping this line like during like all of the escalatory instances. Like, right. I guess they're trying to credit this for like Daytona. Reykjavik
0: or something yeah. yeah well
3: Reykjavik is in 86.
0: right yeah ID is gone by that oh it's gone by that right yeah okay. because it's 72 it's nine years after 72 so it's 81. yeah okay
3: so but just to get back to it <laughs> after nine years of collecting tapes of these unencrypted communications the entire project was breached when a former NSA analyst back in Maryland named Ronald Pelton Fell into bankruptcy. They didn't consider that in their OPSEC.
0: Yeah, you gotta think about
3: what happens when. Uh, Maybe you should probably pay your employees better. Yeah, right. So I, I like to do like just a, a t- bit of justice to uh, Pelton here because he is like the most obscure guy in spy history. He, oh, uh, there was in 1985, the, the year of the spy. Mm-hmm in quotes, where, like, they they have found spies in, like, the FBI, they found mm-hmm. Alder James. Yeah. It's a big time to find Soviet spies in the U.S., mm-hmm. and, like, the the bottom tier here was was poor Ronald Pelton,
2: mm-hmm. who,
3: like, didn't even get paid enough by the Soviets to get out of bankruptcy. Yeah. So he wasn't some guy like uh, Alder James or, like, in the Dreyfus Affair, like, Colonel Esterhazy, who's, like, running up deaths all yeah. over town some with, like, cool shit. Yeah, like, gambling, drugs, and wearing cool suits. And, yeah uh lots of unexplained jewelry and income Mm -hmm. yeah he he never even got enough to pay off his back taxes damn so Pelton though at one time was a smart by all accounts hardworking, well-respected analyst from the 60s through 1979 he was born to a dirt poor midwestern working-class family it seems he actually really genuinely liked his job for a time at the NSA decrypting translated and intercepted communications he spoke he had an identic memory um mm. uh, and and just really incredible recall it shocked his co-workers he spoke and read fluent Russian mm. and uh so he's the guy sitting on the other end of all this cool you know space age operations yeah. and stuff like that magnetic Diving, tapes. magnetic tapes uh but he's the one just going like rewind play mm. blah, 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 blah. rewind play yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and translating it as he told his girlfriend much later in, in 1980 uh, he actually it's eventually he's just hunched over a computer terminal all day mm-hmm. and he apparently kind of like peaked in his salary he made twenty four thousand, which was not bad in 1970 but mm. it stayed the same as inflation went up
0: yeah and this was this was the year's of big time historical yeah. inflation
3: yeah his his entire time at the NSA he's still making the same 24k salary and at first it seems he made it work although it got tight at times Mm-hmm. as he and his wife had more children by 1979 they had four as one example of his uh, occasional desperation uh when he was an NSA analyst uh, there was an incident in 1972 where a co-worker caught him physically breaking into a slot machine to get the quarters mm-hmm. and, Oof. and he and he just got caught like red-handed and just admitted it he He just went to a casino and tried to open it was like eight dollars worth of quarters it's a a real you know like desperate drug addict move but he wasn't a desperate drug addict at the time he just had four kids and was making the same salary as he was rewinding and playing tapes from ivy bells over and over god so uh money was tight and getting increasingly tighter every year due to the in high rate of inflation after the oil price shock but i think the the real coup de grace to ronald pelton's life and stability and everything was this goddamn house
0: mm, classic don't buy a house folks just just uh rent a cold water flat <laughs> that's our advice be a little life like us yeah this or like me most like some
3: from the american dream. Owning a home. uh, You gotta be asleep to believe it. So he ran into a snowballing clusterfuck of issues with his house. Pelton, his wife, and four kids lived in what is uniformly described by every newspaper article I've found about it as a ramshackle or rundown house.
0: Just everybody owning his house.
3: In rural Maryland.
0: In the papers. That's embarrassing.
3: Yeah. This being the 1970s when companies gave even much less of a fuck about air pollution stuff mm-hmm. and ground pollution than today at uh, the dump next door either and there was a, a like a city or municipal dump next door either became increasingly toxic with like seepage or it, it expanded it's kind of unclear from the articles but all of his neighbors and everything kept reporting the place to the health department who did nothing about the dump and so he and his kids had to formulate a plan or he and his wife and kids had to formulate a plan of how to get out of this place and Pelton being the optimist was like it's the 70s what do you buy that will keep up with inflation land oh uh-uh.
0: so he bought all the toxic
3: land no 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 he, he, oh, bought, he bought other land. he bought other un-toxic okay, good land. okay yeah, yeah. he's not that so he bought cheap land he's like I'm gonna I'm a smart guy we're gonna build this house ourselves so uh-huh. cost overruns of course happened and he had to make improvements Then he was hit with rising property assessments and property taxes that were way more than he anticipated Mm. because the value of that land and house rose with inflation very, very fast.
0: And as a wise man said, if you ever if you ever think that you found some one weird trick to like get off the grid and like get yourself just don't don't believe that you can do like this one thing that can be a
3: silver bullet for your life. I'm not sure he could have done like any one thing he tries all yeah. he tries all the one things that yeah like, Heldon is definitely like an optimist he believes in the American dream
0: except that your life will be bad that's the best strategy
3: yeah so when with all these unanticipated costs and stuff on his home came in he took out loans to pay for them mm. but now we're in the late 70s of course when a guy named C- cigar chomping guy named chairman Paul Volcker Mm. takes over and decides that he has the way to crush this inflation which Ronald Pelton thought he had a way to get out of yeah and that yeah. way appears to be uh, interest rates. yes so the rates on the loans like Pelton had been taking uh. out become increasingly impossible to pay his uh. pay at the NSA isn't rising, even though in 1978 and 79, he published what was widely regarded as the handbook for translating uh, Russian He yeah. got paid nothing for it. Out of this uh, Pelton was like, you know what? With this fixed wage salary and with prices going up, I can make more on the open market using my intellectual skill and mm-hmm. in, i think he also got into this with a buddy but he got into a venture to make a gasoline saving device that could be just installed onto your car yeah you're burning less gas with your old 1970s right. long car yeah so
0: he tries to invent his way out yeah that doesn't work does it
3: no no one bought it um as far as i can tell or at least no not certainly not enough to pay the debt so his tax and loan debts becoming unpayable in having no job or prospects, he declared bankruptcy in court. And the filings illustrate just how broke Ronald Pelton got. He listed debts in the amount, and this is $1979, uh, $64,650 in debts and assets of $6.80 in cash, $8 in a checking account, four old cars, it's unknown what was running a motorcycle
2: mm. a
3: ten dollar watch five pairs of shoes a razor and a bowling ball which is such a weird collection that you have to think like Ronald Pelton is also at least at this time an extremely honest
0: person yeah and he maybe he's been selling some of the other stuff you would expect a person to have
3: yeah so now he's down well he's
0: he's, he's still got the, the bowling ball, bowling ball. I mean, probably nobody wanted the bowling ball. Who wants a
3: secondhand bowling ball? I mean, telling me, it's just down to this it's one bowling ball. You got to think, like, that's... In the 70s, on. what yeah. else were you going to do with your time? By the time you've taken a man's bowling ball, you really take his thing Like, it's right true. now, he can just shave off, like, the parts of his face that are not the mustache. Yeah. And bowl that's what he's got yeah after going bankruptcy of course he's a uh, security risk and can't go back to the NSA so he left his wife and kids and at this time he's like shacked up with a new girlfriend and began using illegal drugs according mm-hmm. to like the NSA assessment of Ronald Pelton that I found mm-hmm. uh which is still redacted in a bunch of places by wow. the way so at the end of the, his rope Pelton just it, it, even the FBI agents actually sound like vaguely sympathetic. They're like, we believe Pelton did this on impulse. Mm. He called the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C., and he walked in the next day, and then he shaved his face and walks out through his side door. That's what they capture on the kind of their like spy cameras, the yeah. FBI does. But they can't tell who he is, right. either from the phone call, because I mean, Pelton just speaks fluent Russian, or from the appearance in there. Mm-hmm. His espionage consists not in like stealing documents or intercepting communications, but in using his memory to just recall for them details of operations that he's worked on or he's aware of. And Ivy Bells, he remembers very clearly, he's able to give them the location of where the government had put on the tap, And the Soviets then hightail it, send in a couple of ships and they get all that nuclear powered hardware off of the cable immediately it's in the great patriotic war museum today Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's still on display but it's there in moscow so Mm. all those sophisticated techniques all All that work all the danger yeah uh the the nuclear power battery yeah that's
0: wild all that and they just didn't pay an analyst enough yeah jesus
3: You, you know the thing is is like all of the accounts i've read from these like Man, set guys are just like, and then Ronald Pelton betrayed. That us. fucking ass. That betrayed us, and I'm just like, couldn't you like, isn't his salary like a rounding error to you guys? Yeah, like, couldn't you have like what done something? You all
0: like, make at that time.
3: One thing the Soviets like, we, with like all the Soviet defectors and stuff like that, is like none of them were like, yeah, well, I mean, like, I have to give you secrets. My house is getting taken yeah. away by the bank.
0: Yeah. That wouldn't happen there, no. Would it?
3: I have to give you secrets. All I have is my razor and my bowling ball
0: <laughs> and my invention,
3: my no invention balls. that no one fucking wants now. that gas doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Jeez.
0: Yeah, don't stint the help, folks. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna build an espionage empire,
3: yeah. It seems like this. That's the most glaring weakness of like the American system during the Cold War is that. In the American system, for like, for, for, for no reason having anything to do with how good of their job, mm-hmm. you can have the guys that are guarding all of the secrets, this treasure trove of expensive equipment, in essence, like, they just lose their house. Yeah. Or, like, maybe you check in to see that their house is not next to a toxic waste dump right.
0: They Right. And they should count themselves lucky that the Soviets just went and stripped the thing rather than doing some actually tricky shit like start sending bad information or or over that cable and or just sending out you know the normal amount of information (laughs) and then when they come to collect the Mm -hmm.
3: tapes like like arrest the divers
0: yeah arrest the divers or just like fucking blow up the submarine that they came in and then they get to die down there because they're not supposed to be there
3: yeah the the solution in this was actually like pretty humane yeah just like, oh, there's a tap.
0: I mean, it sucks for it sucks for because this guy went to prison, right? Like, autumn.
3: This guy was in Scott, this guy was in you... prison until 2019. Okay. He died in he died just this last year. Uh huh. I think he actually died at like slightly after the nursery, mommy. Uh huh. Um, but he, he got he got released for a brief time. Did he have to go back to the house that they were all owning him about? No, no, no. I mean, it seems like he actually had like a pretty supportive family. Oh, that's nice. Um, you know, he was not the super spy.
0: No. <laughs> you know? All right. So this is, um, I think we're breaking this one up into parts, right?
3: Yeah. I think we're breaking this one up into parts. Um, for our Patreon listeners, you're going to get the whole episode, uh, for, well, the whole of this part Yeah. right away, uh, in the next episode, Peter, what are we talking about?
0: Uh, we're talking about the, uh, Actual bombing yeah. instead of like the stuff around it.
3: Yeah, we're going to really run a fine tooth comb through all of all the, the aspects of searches and purchase scenario and talk about awesome people. Yeah, we're going to talk about their alibis for ships and planes.
0: Yeah, there's a, it's, it, it gets weird out there,
3: but there's more diving, there's more history. Yeah. And we'll see. You know what? Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers, you ruthless core of Scavenger yeah. Carabinieri. We, we, we love you. We love you. See you next time, folks. All right.